daily prayer. I surround myself with the white light of truth and divine protection. Nothing but which is of the truth and for my good will approach me. For I am a child of God and God will protect me. See this? First things first, God, I'd like to thank David and the committee and Jeff and anyone else responsible for um, the privilege to be able to come here and, uh, and share with you my experience. Uh, my name is Ross Melanson. Uh, my God-given sobriety date is October 5th. Uh, 1989. For that, I'm eternally grateful. And just about anybody else who would have anything to do with me um, is probably real grateful too. So. And that's in honor of my friend Clancy Reed. He texted me today. But he talked about our God-given sobriety date. And I like what he says because... Um, <clears throat> He talked about it as if it had been my idea. I would have gotten sober 8, 10, 12 years earlier. You know? <sighs> I'm a sense and ease kind of guy. I love that, that sense and ease that you and I get. You and I get. I'll just step back. I know you will. I'll put it up right. I'll follow you like sure. <laughs> I love that sense of ease and comfort that I get it right. That, that, that. Oh, man. I just, and I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know. And then I, I experienced alcohol for the first time and I, And all of a sudden, I felt right. I don't know. I felt like uh, now I can get along with people. Trust me, the book talks about us being delusional. Um, you know, now I can dance or you know converse with others. And you know. the book talks and think back in uh, uh, spiritual experience. Uh, about a, tr- a vast transformation and a new outlook on life. And if you want to see a vast transformation, guy like Danny. I'm serious. If you'd seen him a year ago, amazing. The transformation of that gentleman. And just briefly, I think, what, was it Grizzly Flats or you were up somewhere and it just burned down. And he, you know, he essentially came down here and his. Uh, he had gotten to a place where he had given up. And he had the opportunity to, to, you know, it says on page 25, when we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there is nothing, there is nothing left for you and I to do but to pick up that simple set of spiritual tools laid at our feet and get to know much of heaven and get rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence we didn't even know existed. 
And I talked to people, you know, I, a couple, this morning we were out by the church, there were some pennies on the ground. I have a friend 30, 40 years ago who says, nothing less than a dime. I pick up pennies and dimes or nickels. Why wouldn't I pick up a simple set of spiritual tools laid at my feet? No one's put me in a half Nelson or something like that and forcing me. Someone's offering me this simple set of spiritual tools laid at my feet. And I get rocketed. I, get, I find an existence that I never knew existed. That vast transformation, that new outlook on life that I didn't even know existed. I get ahead of myself. I uh, grew up in Marin County. Uh, a brother, three and a half years older than I. My mother was... Uh, stay-at-home drunk, excuse me. My uh, father was a great guy, salt of the earth, beautiful man. And so was my mother. But I lived with a woman that, uh, at home that laid on a couch, uh, smoked five packs of Kent cigarettes. I don't know if he only smoked about halfway down. And, and, and backed it up with a fifth of scotch every day. So I live with alcoholism. I should have known what alcoholism was when I came in here. But my experience is that most of us come in here and we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So, and oh, if you're male and you have not gone to the way out group, you're missing it. This is one of the most phenomenal groups. It just the format, that simple, quiet meditation for three minutes, and then someone goes through the step, and then um, at the last five minutes, we put prayers out for people. How powerful is that? How powerful is that? Wow. Just an amazing format. Uh, my home group, besides, I don't go there as often as I like to, but uh, my home group otherwise is a Capital City Men's Group, uh, we meet 7.30 in the morning on Saturdays, and this morning there was two empty seats, probably 70 to 80 people there. At 7.30 in the morning? You got crazy. Um, I have kind of two opinions on the first step. You know, we, we look at the first step, and it says, you know, power yourself out of alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. Well, when I started drinking, my life immediately became unmanageable. Immediately. I still love that sense of ease and comfort that I got. Immediately. That, that, I, um, yeah, got thrown out of, well, suspended from high school for sales of, uh, stuff you can get at a dispensary today. <laughs> they wanted to expel me, but my parents, you know, I was five, six blocks from the public school, and they, I came back or went to go back. They said, well, you know, we, we, don't want, we don't want your son in our school, but we'll gladly call any of the other schools and give your son a recommendation. And my parents essentially got a lawyer or said they got a lawyer, so they let me come back to school and I just went into smaller sales, um, uh, sales of smaller items. 
So I'm running. I meet, I meet this woman, Robin, and uh, um, she's nice. But uh, she introduced me to this guy, Bob. And I, it's funny. I tell this story. He's my best friend. This guy. I'm running with this guy. I'm, uh, we're we're uh, drinking, using. Oh well, yeah, stay Satan. I know. He told me not to wander. Um, <laughs> For a couple of years, and um, October 1970, Columbus Day weekend, I was with my friend uh, out near Jenner, uh, just short of Goat Rock, in between Shell Beach, this is Shell Beach, and those bluffs. And I was on the receiving end of an attempted murder. I was pushed off a 75-foot cliff. I, I flew 50 feet through the air. If I landed out in the street, that would have been nice. <laughs> and we had taken a little uh, non-conference-approved item. We had taken some uh, lysergic acid dithiamide, which is LSD. And uh, as I like to say, it was a bummer. It was a bad twist. The night before, we had sat out in this bluff. We watched the sunset. We're watching pelicans dive into the ocean, and I'm and I'm thinking, well, you know, I've never seen that. Maybe uh, National Geographic live, man. They're they're going in, bringing, you know, getting fish and stuff. And I think it's pretty cool. But I'm looking over this, bluff, you know, we're sitting at this point, and I said to my friend, I said, man, those those Mexicans, the Hawaiians that dive, you know, the cliff divers. I mean, they're nuts. I mean, you won't even clear the rocks down there. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough money. <laughs> so I wake up at the bottom of this cliff, <laughs> and I'm looking up. I won't bore you too long with this story. There is a point to this story. Uh, but I'm looking up and I'm thinking, man, that looks like where I was sitting last night. <laughs> and, I, and I'm thinking, no, I'm just dreaming. I'm still in my sleeping bag up on the bluff. And I'm, you know. So I'm thinking, well, I'd better get up. So I didn't realize my femur and my hip are broken, but my leg's not broken. So I lift this foot up. Well, this foot has been torn off. Essentially, it's sitting there like when you break a, a stick and it kind of the bark holds onto it. And I guess I looked down and went back out. So it took them four hours to get me out. I got a helicopter ride out of the deal. Um, and I don't, like, I, I don't know if you guys have ever tripped before, but it's about a four-hour trip. And like I said, it was a bummer. It was a really bad trip. My friend, uh, Bob, Excuse me. Told that he figures I'm dead. He figures, oh yeah, we're running around in circles for an hour, you know. And I thought I could fly like one of those pelicans. You know? <laughs> so I'm in the ICU unit. My girlfriend comes in as my as my sister, because only family members could come in. And she walks in. She says, "Well, where is he? You're standing right next." They wouldn't give me a mirror for the first five weeks. I had smashed this side of my face in. Um, like I said, oh, oh, and 
got to, uh, see, I had aspirations as a, as a child. I don't know about you guys. I was known as Rosso Reefer in high school. The Nomi was to be reefed. Okay, that's how I socialized. I have nothing on the dispensaries today. But I could roll, I mean, I didn't need to roll in machines, man. I get that. Yeah. And I had aspirations. I was going to be like maybe like Hugh Hefner's personal joint rolling hip. So I wake up. I wake up, and both my thumbs are broken. But I have casts on both wrists. And I'm thinking about the movie uh, The Hustler with Paul Newman. I don't know if you know how it ends. They break his thumbs at the end. And I'm looking, and I, so, so this is the same thought, right? I'm thinking, man, I'm going to have to learn how to roll doobies again. <laughs> they broke my thumbs. So I fell just before my 17th birthday. And I spent a whole lifetime, I spent another 17 years trying to get that stumble into alcoholics and I didn't really stumble in. My mother had found NA and AA. My dad had found recovery and I like to say their 12 step became my first step. I came in. I moved back home in the playroom downstairs. My dad said, well, how long are you going to be here? I go, I don't know, six months. And, uh, three years later. <laughs> The point I tell you that other story is I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and very well-intentioned, very nice people are talking about their circumstances. You know, if you were married to my spouse, if you had my employee, if, you know, if your father had beat you with a belt, and I'm all, oh, that's what my problem is. It's not true. It's not true. Did I drink harder because I didn't want to think about the hands under my shoulder blades? Because he, my girlfriend approached him and he says, well, I slipped and fell and bumped into him. Well, if he slipped and fallen, he would have hit me in my knees or lower back. But I had two hands firmly placed under my shoulder blades. I don't know about you, but I don't walk along the edge of the cliff stoned on acid. You know, um, and I wanted to believe it was just an accident. So I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what I don't know. I don't know anything about the uh, mental obsession, this idea that overpowers all other ideas. When I start thinking about drinking, I'm drinking, okay? And if the best you've got for me is, call me before you drink. Give me a break, not unless you're buying. I'm serious. I'm not, you know, my mind's not clear. Coupled with this physical phenomenon of craving, we're craving that I don't, Digest. They don't uh, assimilate alcohol at the same rate normal people drink. Have you ever seen how normal people drink? Talk about alcohol abuse. I've had enough. Oh, I'm starting to feel it. Oh, give me. Duh. <laughs> so when I was taken through the doctor's opinion, and I got to uh, find out. You know, that twofold nature of my disease, uh, that mental obsession, that physical craving. 
then at least it gave me a basis to, to work on. You know, to at least now I knew what my problem was and that it wasn't just circumstances. Um, you know, so. So, my understanding is self can overcome self. The thinking mind that got me here does not have the power to overcome the thinking mind that got me here. My alcoholism wants to kill me, will settle for drunk. Talks about, I was talking with a friend last night. You know, Herbert Spencer, contempt at the end of experience, spiritual experience, excuse me. My apologies. Okay. I'm not sorry. I, I, I used to do that all the time and I realized it. Um, spiritual expense. It says, There is a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Contempt is no, I have no, no change. I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you tell me it's a spiritual program. Okay, well, how come... No, come on, man. You're praying and you're passing baskets. I've seen this on Sunday. <laughs> See, my alcoholism wants to kill me, but will settle for drunk. Wants me to leave. unmanageability, but so what's my first step experience? My first step experience, as I understand the first step today, is all those times when I would wake up after a run, several days, my MO is, I'm the guy on page 21. I'm the guy who's been baffling you. I'm the guy that, like, finally, at 3, 4 in the morning, you guys are like, oh, thank God he's passed out. He's you know, he won't be up till 4 or 5, and I'm up, man, at 8.30, and I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. So, I wake up, and I'm really hungover. Maybe it's been four or five days, because I'm used to using some other non-conference-approved things to, so I can keep drinking. And I wake up, and I said, you know, I'm just Saturday or Sunday or Tuesday um, I'm just not going to drink today. And I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just not going to drink today. And that's maybe 8.30, 9 in the morning. I don't know, somewhere around 10 or 10.30, I get this idea. Or somebody says to me, you know, you've got headaches and stuff, man. Have you ever tried hair on the dog? Hair on the, oh, you mean just, you know, just get a little even. Now I'm negotiating about, well, I'll just have a beer. Get even, right? There's not even any thoughts back there. I'm like, well, I thought you weren't drinking today. Well, my girlfriend might come in. Hey, I thought you weren't going to drink today. See, the unmanageability for me, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life's unmanageable. Can I manage the decision to stay stopped? When I get up and I say, I'm not drinking today. I'm just not going to drink today. I'm just watching football or something. Hang out. Can I manage the decision to stay stopped? No. At least that's for me. So I saw uh, the forward to the 
first edition, I believe that's it. Yeah, there it is. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have lost, who have recovered, excuse me, not lost, recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Essentially, you and I, we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believe uh, there's two Alcoholics Anonymous. There's the fellowship that we all get exposed to, and we start going to meetings, and people are under the delusion that meeting makers make it. Give me a friggin' break on throw up. I'm not saying don't go to meetings. Meetings are essential for trolling and to find newcomers and to help people. All right? That's why I'm there. Um, oh, so it says, uh, seemingly hopeless. It took me a few years to see seemingly. See, it only seems like you and I are hopeless. I came in here and I thought it was hopeless. I thought there was no help for me anywhere. And it, sh it shows me that it only seems that I'm hopeless. You and I aren't hopeless. It only seems that way. And, and uh, there's a Dr. Mark that was out from the, he's out in the East Bay. He talked about uh, hopeless was a clinical term in the 30s. You go to town's hospital once, they clean you up, hydrotherapy, hot, cold water, and moral psychology, and they send you home. And you come back a second time, and they do They had no solution yet. There was no steps. Third time, they'd label you. They'd say you're a hopeless, hopeless alcoholic. They'd send you home to die. Delirium tremens. So it was that. So when you hear hopeless, it kind of changes the term. It was actually a... a clinical term before the steps before God got to us and intervened wow I wrote some notes page 28 flimsy read of God wow we in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men what seemed at first a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. That's a promise, really works. Flimsy read. Page 17, the first warning. Oh, I, sorry, I meant to tell you. I got blessed with... Um, I got sober in Marin, my first sponsor, you know, uh, took me through the steps, but he says, you know, there's a couple of guys that come to Sacramento every year, and they can really lay the book out a lot, you know, probably better than I can. Joe and Charlie, when they were alive, they came from 80, 1985 to 2005 in Sacramento. Uh, I am I'm a slow study. I only saw them 17 times. Um, Joe would say, um, my mind's like a bad neighborhood. I shouldn't go in there alone. I will find myself mugged in an alley, waking up, looking up, and I'm going through my own walls. I have to say. So the most insane thing you can do, who, 
Uh, a girl that got divorced. How, how many days she got? Four? Five? Okay, so, here's the deal. If you haven't drank in 72 hours, phenomenal craving's gone. See, the most insane thing I do, and I talked about it in the big book, the main problem centers in the mind, not the body. So, if you haven't drank in four or five days, a year, eight months, whatever, the most insane thing I would do is to pick up a drink. Stone cold sober. Because my mind remembers that. That sense and ease and comfort that I get at once. Wow. That sense and ease and comfort. So, I don't know anything about being in a bar, patting on the bar, you know, that kind of a thing, because my mind just remembers that sense and ease and comfort. So, you can't get sober, or you can't get drunk on the phenomenal craving if you haven't drank in more than three days. So it's got to come from here. In the mind, the mind will try to tell you a lie or whatever. I don't know what it says. The mind just remembers that. that it re Joe and Charlie, we talked about it, said, no one can make you drink. No one has the power to make you drink. Now there's a lot of people, there's an awful lot of people that will make you awfully thirsty. <laughs> But they don't have the power to make you drink. And if you're under the delusion of that, and I heard a guy, excuse me, I don't believe he's here today, but I heard him six or eight months ago and talking about, yeah, you know, I drank again, my mom died, and then my dad died. I'm sorry to hear that both my parents died. And he's under the delusion that that's, he got depressed or whatever and drank again. That's wrong. It's not the truth. You know, uh, they would say, uh, yeah, the only way I can drink is on a lie. If I was to drink on the truth, I can't drink on that. Oh, I think I'll uh, uh, drink some more and see if I can find somebody else to push me off a 75-foot cliff. <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, excuse me. It's good. We're doing that counter. You guys are doing the counter. There. They're leaving. Um, so, my, my understanding of the, of, of the program is it's about power, choice, control. Page 24. Have I lost the power of choice? You know, and I hear people at meetings talking about oh, uh, my drug of choice or my alcohol or whatever. It tells me the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force of memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So, my drug of no choice was alcohol and several other no choices. So, if I've lost the power of choice and when I start to drink, it says on, on 44, there's two qualifying, I asked two-part qualifying questions and uh, 
I don't see anybody falling asleep yet, but um, it says uh, we agnostics. The qualifying question is, is when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Entirely. Or, if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic and if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Promise. So, you know, page 30 talks about the uh, great obsession of every abnormal drinker is someday I will learn how to control and enjoy my drinking. Well, for me to enjoy my drinking, don't tell me how much to drink. Don't tell me how much to drink. I'm serious. I will make your life miserable. You will allow me eventually to drink the way I need to drink. And that means no control. Okay. Joe, uh, Joe and Charlie, he ended up, <coughs> he sponsored a guy, Cliff Bishop, out in uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, Cliff developed a book, a primary purpose group, uh, PPG, not conference approved, uh, and it's questions for just about every line in the big book. The answer is the next line. They developed that. Um, the reason I mention that is because when I would see Joe and Charlie, their really their main theme is take whatever you experience here back to your respect your respective groups <coughs> and carry a message, carry this message. So that's what Cliff did. Is he went back and developed a workbook that you can stay in the meeting and you're just answering the questions. And it's just, it's just going through the book. It's very effective. We, uh, we had the opportunity to do it at Kaiser Permanente CDRP for over 10 years. And um, COVID came and they booted us and I don't think we'll ever be back. So, um, So the first great warning, page 17, he uses the uh, uh, the Titanic or whatever. Uh, he says the first great warning. He says that uh, the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. First great warning. The tremendous fact for every one of us, fact, is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out. Ah, nice name for a group. <coughs> which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And that first great warning is fellowship is not enough to recover. It's important for you and I to feel, you know, I like to talk about, these guys have all heard me tell us. <clears throat> I came in here under the delusion that I was a card-carrying atheist. I was wrong. I had some anger issues with uh, concepts of God. But if you wanted to start an argument with me, come here, come on, talk to me about God. Come on, approach me. So, at some point, Oh, good. <laughs> At some point I was approached and, they, and someone asked me, well, what's an atheist? Yeah. Somebody doesn't believe in God. There is no God. And they said, oh, so you acknowledge 
that there's a God that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> and so then they said, so for thousands of years, oh yeah, back here, sorry. millions of people have believed in something. God, Allah, Buddha, I don't know, I don't think it's Buddha because it's, they're uh, Buddhists. They don't believe in any that which is all things. Um, Confucius, whatever. All those people that have believed for thousands of years, those millions of people are all wrong. Because you're right. Right, Ross? <laughs> Tell me the root of my trouble is on page 62. Oh, really? See, see, I come in here, I don't know what my problem is. Then I get qualified. Oh yeah, and then I'm on page 44. Excuse me. Uh, before I get to 62, 44, uh, it says lack of power. Oh, it says our re- human resources is marshaled by the will self. Uh, we're not sufficient, and they utterly they failed utterly. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power. Greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Forty-five on. We're not even talking about drinking anymore. We're talking. We're talking about how do I access that power, which will solve my problem. And and then oh yeah. So then, like I said, the the room is full of. It says we're outright mental defectives, right? I am so comfortable in a room of outright mental defectives. I really am comfortable here. But they tell me I'm an outright mental defective. That's kind of harsh. And they say, so Ross, you get to choose your own conception of God. As long as it makes sense to you, don't pick a during now that it'll turn on you. <laughs> Something that carries depth and weight. And then, whoa, 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 wait, didn't you just say I'm an outright mental defective? Yeah, Ross, you are. And you're going to let me choose my own conception of God? Yeah, as long as it makes sense to you, Ross. So the question would be, how free do you want to be? Entirely would be nice, right? From the bondage of self. Now we get to 62. I get to page 62 and I might find out, oh, wow, page 62 says that the root of my troubles, the root of my troubles, is selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Well, I like to do it first person. That, we, uh, I think, is the root of my troubles. And I was driven by a hundred different forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And I step on the toes of my fellows, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt me seemingly without, provoca- without provocation. I would just stand on the cliff. What the heck? <laughs> But invariably, we find that at some point in the past, we had made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. I've never been a victim. Never. I volunteered. I said to the guy, hey, 
I mean, he knew what, he, he, he knew he was going to push me. He married, he married my girlfriend eight or ten months later, tries to kill her a few times. He's just a sociopath, crazy, crazy guy. And uh, I volunteered, man. I will walk into a bar, pass by two, three healthy, nice-looking women, and I'll go find some sick one in the back there with a broken arm or something. Well, I can take her home. You don't know how to fix broken arms. And two weeks later, I'm sitting there eating a bowl of Cheerios thinking, how the heck do I get out of this deal? What did I do? Mark Houston, a phenomenal guy, he... uh, he would talk about, so I'm, I'm sitting at home, you know, on page 62, and the door knocks. Cool. And I go answer the door. It's a limo driver. Cool. Limo. He's going to take me to work every day. I wish I had a job. Um, and the limo driver says, hi, I'm selfishness, and I'm going to drive you all day long. <laughs> Now, I can't make it tomorrow because we want to drive you all week. Resentment will be here, and he's going to drive you all day long. Wow. It's funny, you know, I... I write some notes so I can go over pertinent ideas. And I walk into my garage and I find notes from a previous pitch. You know? And then I and I didn't put a date on it. And I look back and then I'm talking about how old my daughters were. And, um, and I realized it was seven, eight years old. It's talking about this stuff. I don't know. A lot of the same things, but... Uh, my, uh, I met my best friend and my wife in a uh, another 12-step program. Um, I'd already worked the steps in AA, and then uh, you know I I had a friend that used to bring stuff up. Uh, had, had the same last name as Jay over there. His, his, uh, his I like to say his uncle, Mr. Escobar, Prince. Southern, uh, South America, and my friend used to bring up this beautiful house. I don't want you guys obsessing about it. It's mother of pearl. Let you open it up, and it looked like stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was gorgeous. And I didn't really, you know, we got into it in the 70s before it was addictive. Um, and, and I can tell people, I didn't really have a problem with cocaine. I just really like the way it smells. This stuff is great. So I went to do steps in Marin. They had CA, and the CA uses our book line. Oh, line for line. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't change any of the words. But I, uh, I met my best friend, my current wife, the only wife I've ever had. She's here in the second row, who loves me in spite of my character defects, which is amazing. Um. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried this. We we got to know each other before we did the. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. And uh, 
And I had these amazingly fast swimmers. We used birth control, but we went to a Joe and Charlie conference, and she says it was the clean sheets. Um, but we did the math. September, we had a June baby, and uh, I joke with Joe and Charlie as uh, Charlene or Josephine or whatever. But um, what happened was, so I'm, not, I'm unemployed. I've moved back home with my parents. I'm in the basement. I don't have a job. My wife is working, but she's living on her mother's couch. Sorry, Laura. She's, uh, you know, she's got a job, but she's helped her mom try to keep a gallery open and everything. And then she gets pregnant. She's 33, and she says, uh, she says hey, I don't know about you, but I, I'm going to keep this child. And so I'm in the, I'm in the gym with my first, my first sponsor, Tony, and I'm still stuck on page 62, full of fear, shame, guilt, remorse. And, and I'm trying to talk him out of, you know, I said, you know, I've been talking to Laura. I said, hey, Laura, you know, maybe we should terminate this. He says, I've already done that before, and I'm going to keep the kid. I don't know what you and I are going to do. So I'm in the gym, full of fear, and I'm trying to talk to Tony. And, and, and Tony says, well, Ross, you got, you got three choices. I'm off. Sounds better than page 25. I only had two. I said, so what? What, Tony? He says, well, you can talk her out of it. I said, Tony, I already tried to, I told you I tried to talk her out of it. And he says, you can leave town. Leave town? They'll track me down. I'll be making child support. Maybe they'll make me the benefit of the, of the child. What's the third one? He says, you can change your attitude. See, the problem's not the problem. It's my attitude toward the problem. Wow. Wow. My wife and I have three incredibly beautiful, gorgeous daughters. You won't know what you're going to be given. Don't know. If you don't ask you to keep coming back, I don't want you to keep coming back. I want you to stay. Stay. Please, stay. Don't leave. Don't leave. My oldest daughter, I like to say she's a doctor. She's a doctor in physical therapy. She's not a chiropractor. She's a, you know, she actually just... My middle daughter is... Uh, she had the opportunity in high school... She's 26 now, but in high school they had this uh, this group this uh, uh, this woman wanted to empower women in uh, coding and started a thing called Girls at Code. And my daughter was out here in Sacramento, and they came out I think the second year, and they had 1,200 girls apply, and my daughter was one of 40 40 girls chosen. She spent the summer going to UC Davis and learning how to code. She made a. She develop, helped develop an app that ABC uses uh, when they do incident reports. When they go out, somebody's gotten you know OD'd, maybe just drank too much alcohol, and they use that in the state of California. My daughter went to go interview with the Department of Motor Vehicles. One interview. They grabbed her. She's already gotten promotions. And then my youngest daughter, who wanted to what, be a chancellor or something, she had aspirations of being a chancellor at uh, universities. And then her friends told her, you know, you've, you've not been, all of them have law degrees. 
she comes home a couple years ago and says, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer. We're all lawyers. She's all, she realized that's how she could navigate her career and empower her. Amazing. So, um, I can't thank God or alcoholics enough to, to take it. It talks about it on page 11. And sorry, I forgot to mention that. I was just pulled out of the scrap heap. I'm just a common drunk. And I got pulled out of the scrap heap and given a whole new life. And, and who knew? I mean, who knew? And um, a couple more minutes left. Two, good. Just in time. All the, all my friends have already heard all this stuff. They're all Ross, you know. So I like to close the ten-step promises. They're not, they're not spoken enough. And personally, I, I, nine-step promises are nice. They're, they're beautiful. Ten-step promises kick their ass, in my opinion. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will return. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find that this has happened automatically. We, we will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is a miracle that we are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither talking nor are we afraid. And that is our experience so long as we keep in, we, uh, so long as we react, uh, what? so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. There's always conditions to all the promises. Um, don't confuse recovered with uh, cured. It's not cured. I can never drink successfully. The nice thing is I don't wake up every morning thinking about a drink. Where can I get a drink? Who can I get money from? You know, my uh, obsessed. And I, and I believe that, um, and if you look in the textbook, there's only, it says one reference to recovering. And that's uh, to the wives, I think, to be patient with their husband when early in his, while he's recovering. Then there's an asterisk to uh, the women that are early in, you know, that are recovering. It's a little footnote. The whole thing is about being recovered, getting to a recovered state. I believe that my God will not leave me out there floating around like the little dandelions that you blow in the wind. That God will take me somewhere so that I can be of help to others. It says on page 77 what my real purpose is. It's the third line down, two words in. And it says our real... No, one word in. My apologies. Our, oh, wait. I said I wasn't going to apologize. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Wow. Who knew that? Coming from a selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, frightened, inconsiderate human being. Thank you for letting me share.